Um, my name is Bethany Amy. I will be reading today's scripture passage. You can find it on page 757 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along on the screen as well. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd like to dismiss our uh, friends who are going to go discuss the sermon uh, in the ESL class, as well as our kiddos, uh, four years old to uh, kindergarten. And as Benjamin said, we are going to be starting our sermon series in Advent uh, in Matthew 1 and 2 called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And uh, it's interesting, we joke in the office, and I don't know if you've noticed, but somehow I don't preach very often, but when I do, I start sermon series. Uh, So it seems like every sermon series, somehow I'm starting it, even though I'm I'm probably preaching once in it. But it's good to be together, and it's good to start Advent uh, with this passage in particular. Thank you, Bethany, for reading it. Clearly, she did her homework. Uh, Yes, right. Now, how do you experience the reading of that list? Do your eyes glaze over in boredom? Do you start tracking, and then by the end, you forget what just happened? Maybe you think, hey, Matthew, don't you know you're supposed to put the credits at the end of the movie? 
Who cares about Jotham or Zerubbabel or Uzziah? Maybe if you're reading it on your Bible app, you would just do what we've all been trained to do, just scroll through the seemingly meaningless stuff and get to the good stuff. In verse 18, which many sermon series on Matthew uh, chapter 1 often take out verses 1 to 17. Many of these people listed here are foreign to us. Some have names we can barely pronounce, right? They feel like strangers, far away, uninteresting, irrelevant. So why does it matter? Even more, what does it mean? And I'll just say, as I've studied it, I've come to see that it is riveting. But before we answer the question of why it matters, let's pray and ask God for help. God, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to each of these people. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for coming. Thank you that you will come again. Lord, we pray that you would come now by your spirit and that you would speak to us through your word. Teach us. Change us. And be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, genealogies are hard for us in part because they're foreign. They're foreign to us uh, because we don't think about them very often in this day and age. I mean, consider here for a moment. Off the top of your head, how many of you know the name of your great-grandfather? Feel free. Yeah, some of you do, probably. Most of us don't, or at least we can't uh, name them off the top of our heads. Now, why is that? Why is it that many of us don't know the names of the generations that have come before us? Well, we live in a culture that does not make much of the past. Those who came before us, they don't really matter, right, or tell us anything about who we are. Rather, I'm my own person. My story starts with my birth. My story begins at my birth, and I'm the master of my own fate. I decide, I determine who I am. But that makes for a very lonely life. A life in which I have to define who I am, more often than not, leads to anxiety and confusion about identity. And so therefore, you have identity crisis. Who am I? Where do I fit in this world? Well, Ancestry.com, an organization that now serves 22 million people, is trying to offer answers to that very question by connecting people with their family heritage. I don't know if you've ever stumbled on Ancestry.com. I did this week in preparation and found out that my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was next to royalty, apparently, in Ireland. Uh, so I, I guess I am almost royal. Uh, but this is Ancestry.com's front page. They say this, A deeper understanding of your heritage and family history sheds light on who you are and can strengthen your identity and sense of belonging. 
That's why Ancestry combines billions of rich historical records, millions of family trees to help you discover your unique place in history and gain meaningful insights that can impact your future. Quite the promise. But they're on to something here, right? We are where we come from. Jesus is where he comes from. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. Matthew 1, 1 to 17 is his Ancestry.com family tree. His family tree tells a story. His story. And the story of Jesus doesn't actually begin with his birth, just as it doesn't actually end in his death. In verse 1, Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word genealogy can also mean Genesis. Why does Matthew 1, 1 to 17 matter? It's the genesis of Jesus. It's the beginning of the gospel. And so the meaning of the Christmas story doesn't actually begin in the little town of Bethlehem. If you want to understand who this Jesus is and what Christmas is all about, you have to listen to the story of its genealogy. And this story shows us that Jesus is two things. He is the heir of grace, and he's the king of glory. Jesus is the heir of grace and the king of glory. He's the heir of grace. On July 2nd, 1962, Sam Walton opened his first store. His business quickly grew. By 1969, his business became incorporated and had already registered $12.7 billion in sales. In the 70s, the company continued to grow, starting more stores, going public. In the 80s, Sam's company had reached $1 billion in annual sales, with over 250 stores nationwide. And today, his company now boasts of over 11,000 stores globally, at least one of which I think you've probably been in. And the company serves over 250 million shoppers every week. I'm sure the next few weeks that number will swell, right? Well, Sam Walton was the founder and owner of Walmart. Sam was worth billions when he died. Where did that all go? It had to go somewhere. As his heirs, his children, Jim, Alice, and Rob, inherited his fortune, each of them now worth nearly $70 billion each. What does it mean that Jesus was the son of Abraham? Well, it means that Jesus was his heir, the heir to the fortune of God's grace. The story of Abraham is really a story of rags to riches. We went through the story of Abram uh, not too far in the past, God had set his heart upon Abraham while he was a nobody, a pagan, a stranger. God made a covenant with Abraham to bring grace to the whole world through him and his family. We read this uh, in Genesis 12, 1-3. Here we see the genesis of God's people. Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised to bless the whole world through this one man, through this one family. God promised Abraham a son, an heir, 
who would inherit both his household and the covenant that God had made with him. In Genesis chapter 17, we read about that very thing. Behold, my covenant is with you, God says to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, your heir after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Well, miraculously, Sarah, formerly infertile, gave birth to Isaac, the son of Abraham, the fulfillment of God's promise. And Isaac was the heir of God's grace to the world. And God promised to never leave Isaac's side, to faithfully lead and love him and his sons and daughters and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren, so on and so forth. And through his offspring, his heir, the world would know the favor of God. And the genealogy of Jesus shows us that God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 was really about Jesus. Paul says as much in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the true heir of God's first covenant of grace. And he came at Christmas as a gift for the whole world. Not just the Jews, that through this one man, the world would be blessed. Paul continues in Galatians 3, verse 28 to 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no female or male, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Abraham in some ways was God's promise to you. It was always meant to include all people. And Jesus himself fulfills that promise. If you're in Christ, you are a son or daughter of Abraham. And it isn't just the story of Jesus that begins in Genesis 12. Yours does too, all by God's unwarranted, persistent, faithful love. No matter your background, no matter your past behavior or lifestyle or your own family tree, however ugly it might be, you're in. You're in the story. And so you might think, but David, you don't know where I've come from. You don't know what I've done, where I've been, who I've associated myself with. You don't know what I'm dealing with right now, true. But if you struggle seeing yourself in Jesus' family tree, look at it a bit more closely. All right, so we're going to put up on the screen all the names in this first section of the genealogy. You might expect good, righteous, and pure men and women of integrity in the family tree of Jesus, but what we find is something quite different. So it starts with Abraham fathered Isaac, right? And Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob and his brother Esau. I don't know if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, but in some ways, Jacob doesn't even belong in this list. 
He stole his way into the inheritance by deceiving his blind dad. And then Jacob had 12 sons that were so insecure and jealous that they sold one of their brothers into slavery and then faked his death and manipulated their dad. Then we have Tamar, who's thrown in there. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And yes, it says that those two twins came from Judah and Tamar. So Tamar actually seduced Judah into an incestuous relationship that spawned these two twins through which Jesus would come. It doesn't end there. As much as uh, we love Ruth, she was from Moab. Moab was known for its sexual immorality. And as much as we might love what happened and the beauty of the story, whatever we think happened that first night with Boaz, it was scandalous. Salmon, Sam, Solomon, see, I'm not even getting them right, Bethany. Solomon <laughs> fathered Boaz through Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute and a Gentile. This is a crooked family tree. We often think about them, wow, the fathers of the faith, the fathers of promise. It's crooked. These are the sons of promise, and yet they're sinful. They're ugly. And this is the family tree that God sent his son into to pour out his grace on the nations. You can take that down. So what does it say that God chose to save the world through that family. This crooked tree says that God is the one who brings about his promises. And no brokenness or sin can change that. The grace of God was not about them. The covenant was not actually about them, their goodness, their integrity. Rather, God's grace, his gracious promises to Abraham and Isaac and so on and so forth was about him and his longing to pour out grace to the nations, to redeem us. And in the same way, the grace of God is not about you. In Christ, you are heirs of God's infinite storehouse of grace, meaning he loves you if you're in Christ. And he loves you without cause, without hesitation, without reservation or regret. Your failure, your sin cannot change that. And he will work out his blessing through you and often despite you. Just as Jesus came from sinners, he came from sinners. He came for sinners. He came for the self-centered, the failures, the unimpressive, the sexually immoral, the cowardly, the vengeful, the men and women who cause people to cringe. He came for the crooked, bent, and broken families. He came for that family member that causes you anguish at Christmas time. Or maybe that family member who won't even show up. He came to redeem the sinner, to buy back and transform the crooked. And no one is an exception. Notice that Matthew includes three women in this section, all of whom were, sure, associated with sexual immorality in some way, but they're also Gentiles. They're outsiders. They're outcasts. Jesus came to bring grace to all people, just as God had promised to do through Abraham. He would break down the barriers that would divide us. 
race, ethnicity, sex. So look around. Your family. We are family. However sinful we might be, however sinful we might be to one another, we're family. And as a family at Christmas, we love as he loved us. We forgive as he came to forgive, and we give thanks for the long time coming grace of God for each of us through the air of grace. Jesus is the heir of grace. He's also the king of glory. One of my favorite Christmas presents of all times was a stuffed animal. And it was a stuffed animal from the movie Lion King, Simba. I was probably five or six at the time. My parents got a lot of mileage out of this gift. I'd run around the house with that little lion cub in my mouth like Mufasa did. It looked real gnarly. The Lion King, in my opinion, still remains one of the best Disney movies of all time. And why do I think so? And why should you think so? Because it's riveting. And it's so riveting because it captures our longing for a kingdom. One in which the king provides for and protects his people so that they can flourish in peace. In the movie, you witness the tragedy of a kingdom fallen into ruin through the reign of a tyrant, a wicked king. But also, you see the resurrection of that kingdom through the triumph, the triumphant return of the heir to the throne. I feel like ready to watch that again. Wow. (laughs) Getting like moved. Uh, Jesus isn't just the heir of grace. He's the king of glory, the son of David. David was the anointed king of Israel. Chosen from the sons of Jesse, a forgotten shepherd boy, but loved by God. God made a covenant with him. And hear God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Sound a bit familiar? Well, that's because it's both the fulfillment of and the continuation of God's covenant with Abraham. God had told Abraham that kings would come from him. That he would make him a great nation. That he would make his name great. This is the same covenant. The same family. But in a new season, it's a new branch with new characters. God promised David a kingdom through a son who would rule over God's people. This is a high point in the nation of Israel. Finally, God seems to be fulfilling his promises to Abraham. And yet, let's go ahead and put up the second list here. Yet this is... uh, the climax in the story of God's, it, it, it doesn't last long. And it starts with David, the decline. Matthew makes it very, very clear. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The promised son of God's special covenant was born through an affair. 
Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba. Instead, he names the man that David murdered. And everybody knew that story. Why would Matthew do that? Well, for one, he's an honest historian that's not interested in fabricating a fairy tale to make it more palatable to his audience, which was the Jews. David's sin was just the beginning, though. If Abraham's family tree was crooked, David's was nearly cracked off. The royal line of David was ugly. There were a few all right kings, sure, but most of them are wicked. Solomon, we know this, he bathed himself in self-indulgence. Uzziah was so wicked that God afflicted him with leprosy. Ahaz sacrificed his son as a burnt offering to idols. And to top it all off, Manasseh, arguably the worst of all, also killed his son while practicing witchcraft and dealing with mediums. He was so evil that God vowed to send such a disaster on Judah that the ears of those who would hear it would tingle. That's out of 2 Kings chapter 21. You can clear that slide. It was during this time, during this line of wicked kings, that God's people started to ache for a coming king. A king who'd get it right. A king who would rule with justice and mercy. A king of integrity and humility. And it was also the time that God began to promise a king. To remind his people, I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken my promises. He promised a king and anointed one. A Christ a Messiah who would do what David and Solomon never did. And it was at this time that uh, the people of Judah received the word from God out of Isaiah 11. It's also the time that they received the word of God that was just read for us out of Isaiah 9. But later on in the book, we read this out of Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he, his eyes see or deci decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. God was promised a king who would right all the wrongs, who would attend to the powerless, who would lead with both wisdom and might, fighting for both justice and mercy. And yet, once again, tragically, this promise, it wasn't fulfilled. Rather than the royal line of David being restored or uh, rising into glory, it nearly dissolved. Israel was deported, taken away. In verse 11, we see Matthew transition into the last section of the genealogy, the time following the deportation to Babylon. Babylon. 
God exiled his people into a strange land. They were hauled off to be ruled by pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar, captive in a foreign land. But God gave them prophets. Prophets who continued to bring his word to his people. They pronounced judgment, mercy, and they pronounced promises of a coming savior who would deliver them, redeem them, and bring them back to their home. This is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of God in exile. He says this in chapter 37. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. My servant David shall be king over Israel and they shall all have one shepherd. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Ezekiel says, my servant David shall be king over Israel. How can he say that? David was dead. Yet God says that he would be their king. And in the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus is that king. He is that David. He's the son of David from the stump of Jesse. And just as an aside, this is probably the meaning of Matthew's use of 14 to divide his genealogy. Each Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet had a number associated with it. And if you count up the numbers in the name David, you get 14. As one hymn says it, Jesus is great David's greater son. He is the savior who brings his people out of captivity. Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's a declaration that he's the guy. He's the one. He's the one that they've all been waiting for. He's the king of glory and his kingdom will last forever as the covenant promised. He's not just going to reign over Israel though. He's going to be the king over all the nations and all the nations are going to know that he's God. What will his kingdom look like? We see later in the book of Matthew that Jesus himself says things like this. The blind will see. The lame will walk. The deaf will hear, the dead will rise, the poor will receive good news, the mourner will be comforted, the sinner will be made straight, the wounded will be bound up, the proud will be brought low, the broken will be lifted up, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and all will know the king. And that he's good, gracious, slow to anger, just, humble, always right, always kind, always merciful, and always obedient to his father. Don't you long for such a kingdom? Don't you long for such a king? Christ, the king of glory, has come. He came as a baby. He lived the life that we ought to have lived. He died the death that we should have died, and he's risen now. His kingdom is here. And yet, why is the world still burning? Why do our souls still ache for something more? Long for freedom, 
Because though we have been adopted into God's family and been recipients of God's lavish grace, and now we're citizens of a new kingdom and we have the risen king, my loved one still died. My heart remains turned in on itself. My family is still broken. When Jesus came as king, he inaugurated his kingdom. And he gave us glimmers of it. And yet, it hasn't come in its fullness. Like Israel was subjected to the kings of Babylon in exile, we too remain strangers in a foreign land. In exile. Some of you feel this acutely right now. This Christmas is not going to be warm and bright for you, but cold. And the burdens that you're bearing are, are going to sit heavier than any gift you're going to receive. Or maybe you feel like you're in exile because you look at the burdens that others are bearing. And your heart breaks as it's profoundly clear that the blind are not receiving their sight. The lame are not leaping. The wolf is not lying down with the lamb. We continue to have leaders that fail us. Whether out in the world, in the church, in our families. The genealogy of Jesus is here for you so that you can have hope. This morning and this Advent season, not the pithy platitude kind of hope that comes on a Christmas coffee mug, but a deep and lasting hope, the kind of hope that is grounded in the ancient vow. It's grounded in the ancient story of which you are now a part. See what he did in the past. See the crooked people that he worked through in the past. See the glimmers of the kingdom. See the manger. See the empty tomb. See the virgin who bore a king and take heart. Because of Christ, even though we groan in exile, we remember the heir of grace, the king of glory has come and we long for the day that will come when there's not going to be any more leadership scandals. There's not going to be any more wars, whether it's, it's in Ukraine or in your living room. No more trauma, no more caskets or urns, no more questions about whether we've been abandoned or whether we'll be alone forever. The kingdom will come. The king of glory will set the world straight in love forever. And we will look back on a multitude of generations and see not just crooked limbs, but fruits of grace in the hands of a king. Your story sits within a grand story of God's redemptive power and grace in history. However dark your story is, he can wield it for good to bring light and hope where there is none as we await the day of his second advent. And on that day, he's not coming in as a babbling baby, but a roaring lion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the genealogy of Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness to your covenant promises that you gave centuries ago to your people to set the world right, to bring shalom to bring your kingdom to bear on the wreckage that is our world. And we pray, Lord, that this Christmas that you would bring hope to the hopeless, 
that you would lift up the downcast, that you would humble us into repentance, that we might see you, and that the people around us might know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.